It was 2004. I was starting my fifth and final year at Dallas Theological Seminary. My wife and I were three years into marriage. Graduation was finally getting closer and closer, which meant that change was on the horizon. What kind of church position might I secure? Where would we live? Would we move closer to our hometown of Lubbock, Texas? What kind of church would we be a part of? What would the town and its culture be like? As we were pondering these questions, I I ran across some shocking statistics about where Dallas grads typically land right after seminary. Despite the fact that over 80% of Dallas seminary students are from out of state, upon graduation, about that same percentage finds ministry positions within the state itself. And about 50% stay within the Dallas metro. I, I couldn't believe it when I saw those stats. And that's when I decided, nah, it's not for me. Honey, it's time to get out of the Bible Belt and move far, far away from here. And yes, that did take a little convincing, but eventually we agreed. And so we, what we did is we printed out a map of the United States and plotted all the job openings that we knew about. But we excluded from that map not only those church positions available in Dallas, not only those in the state of Texas, but also any position located throughout the entire South. Let's get out of this Christianese culture and minister in a context where it's more difficult to be a Christian. And so I applied for positions in New England, the upper Midwest, the Pacific Northwest, areas where there is a much greater need for churches. Might as well, might as well try something bold and daring while you're young, right? That was our game plan. We were nervous, but hopeful. Where might God put us? Well, you can all guess what happened after that. We landed right smack dab in the middle of the Bible Belt, here in Jackson, Tennessee, where there's a church on every corner. And like many of you who have moved here to Jackson from elsewhere, much to our surprise, we've been here ever since, ever since May of 2005. Upon reflection, I am, I am grateful that we didn't leave the culture with which we were both so familiar. We had lived in West Texas and then North Texas and now West Tennessee, and while there are certainly some cultural differences between these regions, they all share something in common. They are heavily churched, especially with evangelical churches. Draw a broad stroke from West Texas through North Texas and and all of Tennessee and keep on going to the Carolina coastlines and there's your Bible Belt, an area that shares a distinct, quote, Christian culture. And yes, I put quotation marks around the word Christian because it's more of a cultural Christianity than anything else, a, a nominal Christianity, something more in name than in actuality. But it is the culture with which I am most familiar. I know the language. I know the games people play around here. Most anyone you bump into would consider themselves here a a good Christian person. Why? Because they believe in God, country, faith, and family. This is largely what it means to be a Christian in the South. 
That's why it's perfectly acceptable to ask, approach any stranger and ask them where they go to church. Because it's assumed that everyone does. Not every Sunday, of course, but you know when there's nothing else to do and, and you feel like it. Even if it's only a few times a year, yes, a person can still tell you the church of which they are a member. It's the culture we live in. Heavy on giving lip service to Jesus, but light on conforming one's life to his. It's a culture where it's socially acceptable, even advantageous, to label yourself Christian, even if your life doesn't look much like its founder. A culture where people honor God with their lips, but their hearts are much more devoted to other pursuits. This is the danger. This is the ever-present temptation for all of us living in the Bible Belt South. That we would begin to assume that at the end of the day, this is what Christianity is all about. That, hey, Christians aren't perfect. We're, we're, we're just forgiven. We prayed the prayer. We walked the aisle. We're associated with this or that church. So there, Christian. Well, I've become more and more convinced that if Jesus ever came to the scene right smack dab in the middle of the Bible Belt, if he ever rode into Jackson, Tennessee, he might just overturn a few tables and disrupt the religious games we like to play here. And if he was then questioned by the religious establishment, I believe this would be the issue above all issues that he would want to expose. This lip service Christianity that is so prevalent in this region. Well, my friends, 2,000 years ago, can you believe it? He did just that. In fact, that's the context for today's gospel reading from Matthew 21. I want you to notice that our passage begins by mentioning that Jesus enters the temple. That's important because it's a subtle allusion to what happened the day before. You see, for the last few chapters, Jesus and his disciples have been on a journey. They've been heading south, maybe not to the Bible Belt south, mind you, but to a place where the religious air is just as thick as ours. The hub city of all hub cities. No, not Jackson. Jerusalem. The city of Zion. The holy site of God's temple. Jesus arrives there the day before our story, riding into town on a donkey, and he doesn't like what he sees. The games people are playing, giving lip service to God as their hearts are elsewhere. And so, yes, you guessed it. He walks into the temple courts and overturns a few tables, disrupting the religious show, causing quite a stir so that it, the incident becomes the talk of the town now. Which is why the next day, when Jesus enters the temple once again, here in our passage, the religious establishment show up. This is actually the first time in Matthew's gospel we are introduced to them. They're called, quote, the chief priests and the elders. And they want to know, by what authority are you doing these things? Which is a clear reference to what happened on the previous day. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack the trap that they laid for Jesus. But as he so often does, Jesus gets out of it. He outsmarts their question with a question of his own before taking the offensive with a parable about two sons. Verse 
And as much as they needed to be confronted with this short but powerful parable back then, so today we too need to be confronted with the same. I want you to listen to this short parable once more. What do you think, Jesus says? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not, but later changed his mind and went. The father went to the second son and said the same thing. And he answered, I go, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? In other words, what does God care more about? Talking the talk, as we like to say here, or walking the walk? Does God care more about our professions of faith or putting our faith into practice? Does God care more about us saying the right things or doing the right things? Well, clearly, I would think that he prefers us to do both. But if he had to choose, according to this parable, he would rather see rebellious ones turn back and bear fruit worthy of repentance than religious ones speak loudly about their faith without any fruit to show of it. This theme is a loud one in Matthew's gospel. We hear it first from the forerunner to Jesus, his cousin, John the Baptist, which is probably why Jesus mentions John twice in our passage today. But go back to chapter 3. Before we hear a word from Jesus, it is John who leads the way. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he goes on to add, so bear fruit worthy of repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, oh, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, you hear what John's saying, do not presume on your label or what you say about yourself, what you say about your faith. No, God does not look at one's label. God looks at one's lifestyle. And then a few chapters after that, Jesus in his famous Sermon on the Mount, we hear these chilling words from him, words that should stop us dead in our tracks. You've heard them before. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. You see, that's what God is interested in. Not in what we say, but in what we do. Moving on to Matthew 12, while Jesus is speaking to the crowds, someone tells him, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They're wanting to speak to you. To which Jesus replies, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Only those who do the will of my father. Boy, this theme is getting louder and louder, isn't it? And still, there's more as you're reading through Matthew. In Matthew 15, we discover that the Pharisees are questioning Jesus about why his disciples are breaking the traditions of the elders. And this does nothing but infuriate Jesus. And so he turns around and exposes the Pharisees for who they are, saying, You hypocrites! Isaiah prophesied rightly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Ouch. 
That's because God is not interested in being honored with our lips if our hearts are not devoted to him. And we really can't highlight this theme in Matthew's gospel without mentioning the very last verse in the book. You remember this is when the risen Jesus commissions his followers to make disciples of all nations, and they are to do this by doing two things. First, baptizing them, and then second, by teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. That's fairly exhaustive if you ask me. Everything. By now, our ears should be ringing and our hearts melting because it is so easy around here, just as it was in Jesus' day. It is so easy for us in the South to declare our faith, to proudly wear that Christian badge on our shoulder, but obeying everything Jesus commands, that's another thing. rearranging our lives so that they're more in line with the radical ways of Jesus. Now, now, now hold on just a minute. Let's not get crazy here. But that's just the thing. Obedience to Jesus was never meant to be an afterthought. It was never meant to be optional. It's not just what over-the-top Christians do. It is what the Christian faith is about, (laughs) It's actually what God is doing in the world. He is forming a people who so share in his life that their lives become more and more like Jesus for the sake of the world. That's what the Apostle Paul was doing. He went around, yes, proclaiming the good news of what God was doing in Jesus, but why? Well, he tells us why in the outset of one of his greatest letters, the Epistle to the Romans. He says, I'm doing all this to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. This is what it's all about. To form communities so rooted in the love of God that their lives are transformed, overflowing with radical and self-giving love for the good of others. My friends, contrary to our Bible Belt culture, the church is not a country club. The church is not religious entertainment and inspiration. It's not a a storefront for religious goods and services that will help you on your spiritual way. That's not what the church is. No. The church is a community that houses God's very presence so that we might learn how to live in obedience to Jesus, our Lord and King. Because we believe that the way of Jesus is what heals us, it's what heals the world. That's what we're doing here. That's our fight, and that should be every church's fight. But it's an especially hard challenge for those of us who live right here in the South. But it's a fight that we all are called to participate in. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus and save your people. Come into our churches and overturn our tables. Disrupt our religious games and call us to repentance once more. That we may show forth your praise not only with our lips, but in our lives. By giving up ourselves to your service and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. Lord, have mercy upon us. Amen.